So, Miles, I was thinking about the Shadow King. Uh, He's an interesting dude, at least in concept, and remarkably consistent across alternate universes, which I appreciate. Well, the ultimate one is a little different. He's Storm's ex-boyfriend, for starts. Wait, really? Well, sort of. When her powers manifested, she accidentally shocked the dude she was with to death, and his consciousness got shunted to an alternate dimension, and when he came back, he was the Shadow King. There were brood involved, too, kinda. It's complicated. Huh. Was he still trying to possess Storm? No. Well, not exactly, but he definitely had some pervasive and lingering impact on her. He was messing with her dreams, and it was pretty heavily implied that he could influence her behavior in other subtle ways. Like what? Oh, did she grow an evil goatee like Cable? Man, that would have been great. Nah, nothing quite so gauche. Oh, what then? Larceny? Villainy? Playwriting. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 145 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to another very important milestone in the construction of the X-90s, that being the first appearance of, you know, that guy, Remy LeBeau, Gambit. But before we talk about Gambit, there are a couple other points I want to hit. They're sort of semi-meta points, cool upcoming stuff, events, and podcast things. We are going to be at Emerald City Comic Con, which is coming up early next month. This year, it is March 2nd through 5th, and we will be there all four days tabling. I don't know our table number, but we will post it and let you know on the show as soon as we do. We've also got a really big milestone that we're going to be hitting at Emerald City. We are going to be recording our 150th episode live on Sunday. 150, right. So that means we're going to fight Magneto on Octopusheim and learn about his tragic backstory, right? Does this mean we get sweet, sweet octopus tunics? Because I am entirely there for those. Okay, you can have the octopus tunic, but I want to wear Kitty Pride's costume that she had in that issue with like the spangly gold and the roller skates and stuff. That's fair. Okay, we can make this happen. So slight spoiler, there may be some um, some changes to our, our default looks at this show. You'll uh, you'll see. We'll see, I guess. No, you know what? I'm not going to totally spoil this, but I'm going to say Miles and I are finally dipping our feet into an ocean that we have admired from the shore for a very long time. We are totally going to cosplay at Emerald City. We are doing this for real. Indeed. We'll see how that goes. So yeah, we will be at Emerald City. Again, we'll be tabling all weekend. We're going to have some new con-exclusive merch that we are really excited about. Yes, I'm looking forward to being able to talk about that. And we've got the live show, and I've also got a ton of other panels all weekend, and we'll be around, so please come and say hi. We will also probably be having a party and meet up this year. We don't have the details on that yet, but as soon as we do, we will let you know. Yes, come see us. We love seeing you. We're delightful. Miles is delightful. I'm, um, I'm civil. <laughs> Okay, so yes, announcements taken care of. Is it time to talk about that guy again? Are we just going to call him that guy? Possibly, yes. All right, so Gambit, if the 90s is made up of a few specific concepts, I'd say those concepts are Ninja Psylocke, Jubilee, Gambit, and Pouches. And I guess, okay, let's throw Cable in as well. But yeah, we are now hitting kind of the last of those major 90s pillars, and I gotta say, reading through these issues again, they hold up surprisingly well. Like, Gambit could come off as a total sleazy creep and as a collection of character traits I don't really enjoy. But when he first shows up, he's kind of awesome. Yeah, man. I have been so utterly jaded by Late Gambit that I had forgotten how really genuinely fun Early Gambit is. Yeah, and I think this is also a fun era of Uncanny X-Men because the book has been, I don't want to say it's been floundering for a little while since the team disbanded, but it's certainly been unfocused. And now we see things starting to come together, and it's very satisfying to witness that. Especially coming into discussing this out of the ends of the cross-time caper, which are one of the weirder and more extended fizzles of this era of X-Men, this feels like it has a lot of momentum and a lot of purpose that we're not quite there in the preceding material. And I want to go back to Gambit, though. So I talk a lot of shit about Gambit, and I mean most of it. I think that a lot of the time he is written as the character who is supposed to be cool and supposed to be sexy and actually just reads like his mutant powers that he's made entirely of red flags. And I realized a while ago that the version of him that I really like, that I most enjoy, has historically been the version who appears as a supporting character in Marjorie Liu's X-23 run. Yeah, totally. And going back and reading this and reading about his first appearances, I think I'll revise that to I like Gambit when he is running around with people other than adult women. Because he is 
pretty good about things like not sexualizing teenagers, which I appreciate, which is important. And he's able to maintain a really kind of fantastic rapport with Teenage Storm in this, in a lot of the same ways he is with Teenage X-23 later. That's very, very different from, you know, the Wolverine mentor dynamic. And I really enjoy that in those dynamics, you know, Gambit doesn't stop being Gambit. Like, he becomes less questionably sleazy, but just as pleasantly sleazy and well, long-haired card-throwing. He's, he's not sleazy at the teenagers, which is important. Yeah, but I guess my point is he still feels like Gambit. He doesn't feel like he's lost anything. And so that makes me wish that we got to see that version of Gambit as often as possible. Because with Young Storm, with X-23, and, you know, in many other circumstances, but not all of them, he can be a great, great character. What both of those characters bring up for me is, again, one of the more interesting aspects of Gambit, which is the way he interacts with the concepts of childhood and childhood innocence. My sense of that, and some of this, I'll admit, comes from Ultimate Gambit, where these themes get played out fairly specifically. Some of it comes from the character's history in ways that will unfold later. But that Gambit's sense of childhood as a distinct state is pretty much just sort of a romanticized thing that he sort of has a vague idea might exist but has never really encountered directly or experienced. Like, he doesn't really quite know what it means. And so he's protective of kids and of younger characters in ways that go with that. But he also doesn't really quite treat them like children. I mean, he doesn't really understand about protecting kids from risks. And for characters like Lil Roe, as Chris Claremont apparently called her, and, and X-23, that works really well because those are both incredibly competent characters despite their age. Yeah, I feel like Gambit is kind of your irresponsible uncle who babysits and, like, lets you climb the kitchen shelves because, you know, worst that'll happen is they'll fall and probably won't get hurt too bad. And especially if you're X-23 and have a healing factor. And then teaches you to pick locks. <laughs> right, totally. Oh my god, Gambit would be everyone's favorite babysitter by such a wide margin. <laughs> yup. So we should talk a little bit about the structure of how we're going to handle this because... Just like we skipped an issue in our last X-Factor coverage in favor of covering it later where it seemed to fit better, we're going to skip an issue here. We're going to skip Uncanny X-Men number 264 for the most part so that we can focus on the Storm, Shadow King, Hounds, Gambit story, which is a nice little three-parter. Well, we're going to cover a couple points from that issue that tie into this arc. But before we do that, I feel like we should talk about what's leading in because, again, we're introducing a new character. We've got a very atypical situation, and the X-Men are split and scattered at the moment. So we're really only following one of them in this story. Previously on X-Men. Following her apparent death in Australia, a teenage storm woke up in Cairo, Illinois. Cairo, Illinois, because, you know. She's got no memory of her time with the X-Men, and her mutant powers are just now beginning to manifest. Now, we're going to learn about why and what happened over the course of the next few issues, but let's go back a little bit and talk about Storm's backstory as a kid, because that's the stuff that's going to be informing her character now much more than her time with the X-Men. Right. Storm, at this age, was a thief in Cairo. Following her parents' death, she wandered in that direction, was taken in by the master thief, Ahmed Al-Gibar, and taught how to, you know, steal. And that's where Professor Xavier first met her. In a flashback issue, he dueled with the Shadow King, but not before having his pocket briefly and unsuccessfully picked by Aurora. He wouldn't actually recruit Storm until years later, but that was her first contact um, with him. This Storm has her thief skills. She is an accomplished pickpocket and cat burglar. But her mutant powers are just beginning to manifest. She doesn't have a lot of control over them, and she can't really even call on them at will. She's also very confused by what's going on, not just because she got, you know, shunted forward another 10 or 20 years, but also because the FBI agent who found her when she was injured in a rainstorm ended up, unbeknownst to her, dying and getting possessed by that self-same Shadow King that we mentioned a second ago. And framing her for a series of murders he subsequently committed. So what's the Shadow King's deal? We know he possessed Amal Farouk. We know he's dueled Charles Xavier. We know he's currently taken over the body of FBI agent Jacob Reese. But he's a much bigger deal. Like, he's not a Storm-specific villain at this point. No, no. I mean, initially he was an Xavier-specific villain, and we'll later find out that apparently he is a multi-dimensional entity that exists in every universe simultaneously and extends psychic tendrils into each one. So there's actually Ew. just one Shadow King. I actually think that's kind of an awesome uh, way of doing a character. No, it's cool. I mean, I like the principle of it, and I like the subtle differences in the ways he manifests. It's just but... the extending tendrils you're not so sure about? Yeah, it's just kind of icky. I mean, they're psychic tendrils. I don't imagine they're, like, sticky or whatever. Have you heard my new band, Sticky Tendrils? We're kind of a... You know what, never mind. 
Anyway, what Chris Claremont has been doing at this point in continuity is building the Shadow King up as basically the big bad of the entire X universe. We've seen this in Excalibur, where we found out that he's apparently behind the Hellfire Club in the Days of Future Past universe, and thus behind a lot of the bad stuff that happened in that universe. We've seen that in Uncanny X-Men, the book we're talking about right now, as he's been gradually evilly influencing almost everyone on Muir Isle, and that's really going to come to a head pretty soon. So, I gotta say, the Shadow King may not be my favorite villain. He may not grab me in the same way that, like, Selene doesn't really grab me. Despite his sticky tendrils? Uh, yes, despite his sticky tendrils. But Claremont certainly wasn't cheating as far as, you know, having him come in as the big villain. He was really building him up over a long period of time. And, you know, he was actually building up this thing with Storm over a long period of time as well. I mean, we're starting with Uncanny X-Men number 265 here. Young Storm first showed up in 253 after dying in 248. This has been going on for a really long time at this point. So kudos to Claremont for, you know, having the foreshadowing for basically everything that happens. Speaking of foreshadowing, shall we talk briefly about the pertinent bits of 264 before we jump into the story? Yeah, yeah, let's do that, because Uncanny X-Men 264 has a scene like scenes we've been seeing in the past where Valerie Cooper, who's a government agent in the U.S. who's in charge of superhuman stuff, has been secretly meeting up with Colonel Vajin, who's a Russian military something or other. Well, Colonel. He's well, a colonel. Yes, but a colonel in charge of apparently something specific. He works in intelligence. And he always meets up with her in really inappropriate environments. I assume just like for subtlety. So first we had them meeting up at a club and now um, I guess they're workout buddies these days. Yeah, yeah, because Vajin and his assistant show up in the gym where Val's working out. You know who he reminds me of? He reminds me of Chief Quimby from Inspector Gadget. You know, he'd like show up inside a mailbox or inside a locker or whatever. Oh, man, imagine if they kept the same gag at the end where Val just, like, threw the self-destructing notice at him every time. Yeah, and wasn't that whole thing from Inspector Gadget also a reference to that one agent in Get Smart who was always hiding in various places? There were a lot of Get Smart references in Inspector Gadget. I mean, Don Adams being the most obvious, but... Yeah, it's true. Yeah, Inspector Gadget was fine, but Get Smart was so good. I used to watch it all the time on TV Land or Nick at Night or whatever it was at the time. Oh, God, I love Get Smart so much. And I never stopped resenting how bad the nude bomb was because the concept behind that movie was so good and the actual movie was so bad. Didn't they have a remake of Get Smart not too long ago? I don't know anything about it. I don't know. I fundamentally don't trust Get Smart spinoffs anymore. That's entirely reasonable. But we digress. The point is, Colonel Vashon and his assistant are meeting Val Cooper, and I kind of love when Val first sees his assistant, who's an attractive young woman, who she refers to as the KGB's killer cutie commando herself. That's a phrase we've heard come up in just, like, totally other contexts, too. This is becoming a specific Claremontism, and it's weird. Yeah, because in Uncanny X-Men number 245, that was the Rob Liefeld-drawn invasion issue where all the male characters go out drinking in Australia. There were a group of alien invaders called the Cosmic Cutie Commandos, and they were defeated when Longshot was all, like, romantic at them. I'm pretty sure we've heard Jubilee use a phrase similar to this at some point, too. I just don't remember precisely when or where. But yeah, so that particular alliterative bit is popping up yet again. Well, the reason that the Russians are here right now is that they're talking to Val about what their intelligence has gathered about these mutant factions that are growing in this giant mutant war. You remember the mutant wars, that crossover that never happened that we've talked about, that is going to occur. So in this case, Vashon talks about how they've already known about a few mutant factions, namely the Mutant Liberation Front, Apocalypse, and Mr. Sinister, but he's discovered a fourth, that being the Shadow King. And Vashon describes the Shadow King as... The ultimate power broker who excelled at playing all sides against the middle, working simultaneously for every great power on the globe. The person he doesn't mention, or people he doesn't mention, to my immense surprise, are Magneto and the Hellfire Club, who were the ones who were explicitly being played as major forces in the theoretical mutant wars should they happen. You know, I was thinking about that, and my take is that since the Shadow King is being tied more and more to the Hellfire Club in this era, maybe Claremont just sort of wanted to mix them in together to have the Shadow King and the Hellfire Club end up as effectively one entity. It's also reasonably possible that everyone just forgot. How do you forget about the Hellfire Club? I mean, look at the costumes they wear into battle. They made them in craft night and everything. Oh, now I'm imagining them like running up and everyone's already left or gotten ice cream without them. Oh, man, they're, they're just so got their sad. little capes tied on. Sebastian Shaw takes off his shirt and punches through a wall. And then X-Factor shows up and says, hey, was there wall punching? Are we, are we breaking through walls? And then they can invite X-Factor into craft night. And oh, then they... man, do you think Sebastian Shaw just always takes off his shirt when he's sad? Is that a thing? I think he's kind of like Armstrong from Full Metal Alchemist who takes off his shirt at every opportunity, period. Now I want to see them hang out. There'd be so many gleaming pectorals, huh? I genuinely can't tell if they love or hate each other. I'm thinking about this, and it would either go really well or really terribly. There would be a lot of exclamation points in their dialogue. That much I can guarantee. 
There would. There would. <laughs> so it occurs to me, now that we're talking about Val Cooper and kind of what's going on with her dealing with the Shadow King. So actually, Val Cooper, she's going to be the running B-plot of this arc. And I think maybe we should just sort of talk through her story first because it's completely, completely separate from the Gambit and Storm Adventure. Let's do that, yeah. And it's also much shorter. So the next time we see Val Cooper, she's actually at a cafe in Washington, D.C. In the process of being possessed by the Shadow King. Right, because we see Dr. Lian Shen, that's the sort of thrall that the Shadow King possessed from the hospital where Storm was found, talking to the crying but blank-faced Val Cooper and saying that, you know, being a slave isn't so bad, as they both sort of look adoringly at Jacob Reese, the current human host of the Shadow King himself. What he is going to have Val do is go and assassinate Mystique. With destiny out of the way, he assumes that Val will be able to do this with no problem. What he has failed to consider is that, in fact, destiny, being precognitive, knew she was going to die and so, you know, wrote extensive notes for Mystique's later reference. And so when Val Cooper shows up with a gun at Mystique's house, apartment, office, hidey hole, wherever she is, to see Mystique, you know, tearily reading a letter that Destiny left for her, Mystique explains, hey, so Destiny knew how she was going to die, but she also knew how I might die. So this moment right here, I knew exactly what was going to happen. Let's get this over with. And there's a great big bang, and that's the last we see of Mystique for a long time. Or is it? I mean, you never know, because Mystique. And that'll actually factor in pretty heavily, but it's important right here to remember that the last time we saw Mystique, a mostly possessed by the Shadow King, Val Cooper, was ready to assassinate her in her own home or, you know, wherever. And shots were fired, but the artist did not see fit to show us by whom or where they landed. I'm sure it's exactly what we expect. I'm sure that there's no twist whatsoever going on here. I mean, there never are in stories surrounding Mystique. She's a very, very straightforward character, always to be taken at face value. Nicely done. Nicely done. Thank you. So let's bear that in mind, and let's bear another seemingly completely unrelated scene from the very beginning of the Storm Gambit arc in mind. Because if I think one thing about a Storm Gambit arc that has to be there, it's Alien War. Wait, what? Yeah, so at the beginning of number 265, which we're in a fill-in artist era, this is drawn by Bill Joska and Joe Rubenstein, we have a, an alien race called the, okay, so it's P exclamation point Y-N-D-R. I believe exclamation points are supposed to be that, like, throat click, click. thing. Can you tell us how we're supposed to pronounce their name? No. Oh, well, then I'll try it. God, I'm terrible no, at that. I think you could probably get away with just tongue-clicking it as an accent and have it be p-inder. Okay, well, anyway, what they are is a bunch of space gargoyles who, as the narration tells us, the Shi'ar were trying to force into an alliance. You remember the Shi'ar, the space bird jerks who rule most of space, apparently. And we've got a third-person narrator again, which we don't see that much these days. So much about them is different from terrestrial humanity. Yet it's surprising what we have in common. Here, too, is a race that, more often than not, is too proud, too fierce, too arrogant, too passionate, too stubbornly independent for its own good. A people who prize honor and courage and, above all, liberty. Claremont just makes everything epic. I mean, to be fair, space fights are kind of inherently epic, but even more so. And what we learn here is that this champion of the Pinkinder fought a Shi'ar champion and kind of is falling to a planet because he lost. And he describes his foe, the Shi'ar champion who took him down to his life mate when he's found and dying, as a terrifyingly powerful telepath. I never imagined such power existed. Against it, we are nothing. With it at her command, the mad Shi'ar empress reigns supreme. And this is going to be a huge plot point, but not for, like, a really long time. So we have the Mystique and Val Cooper stuff being set up for later. We have the Mutant Wars being set up for later, even though they'll never happen. We have this big alien fight with the Shi'ar and their mysterious new champion being set up. That's Xavier, right? That has to be Xavier. Xavier? No, no, no. That wouldn't be a straightforward way for the plot to go. And as we just discussed, the plot is always very straightforward. I like how they're trying to be mysterious, but obviously it's Xavier. But anyway, that won't be for a long time because... With weird space gargoyles out of the way, with governmental spy stuff out of the way, it's time to check in with Lil Aurora Monroe. Aurora is spending her tenure in Cairo, Illinois, robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. Her latest victim is a cutthroat, unethical businessman who flips companies and strip mines them for cash. She basically breaks in, steals a bunch of his stuff, and 
tries to fly away using her wind powers, but doesn't have quite enough control and almost falls. And this makes sense. I mean, we see a character who is probably right around puberty. So if her mutant powers have just manifested without anybody like Xavier there to train her, or, you know, without the chance to wander around in Kenya and become a goddess, I suppose, in Storm's case, she's not very good at using them yet. How old is she supposed to be here? Because it's kind of inconsistent in the art, and I don't think we get very many textual indicators. I get the impression she's somewhere in the vicinity of maybe 12 or so. Yeah, I would have guessed like somewhere between 12 and 14. Well, it's hard to say. I mean, ages in X-Men or in comics in general, for that matter, are always pretty ambiguous, and they definitely are here. But yeah, it's really fun seeing this different version of Storm, seeing her basically be a slightly superpowered thief. And going after corrupt businessmen, well, that's something I always enjoy seeing, and these days I especially enjoy seeing. But she's really frustrated with the powers, and she's frustrated in a you know really ironic context where she basically what she's looking for is what she now no longer has had. There must be a better way. What is the point of having such fantastic powers if they do me as much harm as good? Pity there is no one to teach me their use the way Ahmed El-Gabar did my craft as a thief. You know, I gotta say, a lot of people get down on the young Aurora storyline, or Lil Ro. You know, I hate saying Lil Ro. I'm not yeah, gonna say that anymore. It. Stop it. So the young Aurora storyline, but I really enjoy it. I mean, because this is a chapter of Storm's life we haven't seen very much of. And so seeing this version of Aurora, even if she's in a modern context, or at least modern when the issues came out, that's a kind of cool chance to see what she used to be like as a kid. You know, we talk about different universe versions of characters and the ways that they sort of strip them down to core concepts. And I think this has a really similar effect. This is Aurora in a much rougher, much less polished form. And she doesn't have a lot of the regality that's going to define her later, but she does have the tenacity and the drive. And she has a lot of the skill. Yeah, man. Between this and like that first fight with Callisto, where we learned so much about who she was, and life death when she lost her powers, and I'm just going to throw in that time she turned into a space whale because I think it's funny. She is such a complex, well-rounded character. There are so many facets to her, and they all fit together. None of them seem arbitrary. And also, all of them are just absolute stone-cold badasses. Yes, pretty much everyone, including the space whale. So as Aurora tries to figure her powers out and escape her latest victim in the fine 1990-1991 tradition of spectating villains, good old Nanny and the Orphan Maker are watching on a monitor. Of course they are. And I gotta say, Bill Jaska, the way he draws them, like, overall his art is, it's okay, it's not my favorite. But I really enjoy the exaggerated body language he uses for Nanny, but especially for Orphan Maker, because as we know, Orphan Maker, despite looking like a great big robot, is actually a little kid in a giant robot suit. And when Jaska draws him, and I think Jaska is the first artist to actually do this, he's got the body language of a little kid, even in that giant robot suit. The way he stands, the way he moves, his posture relative to Nanny, like, he comes off childish in ways he never really has visually before. And this makes sense, because if you remember, Nanny is a villain who captures mutant children, wipes their brains, and saves them from, you know, the world at large, but also their parents by, say, murdering their parents and erasing their memories of that. And the orphan maker, it's implied, is somebody who went through this exact process, albeit from Mr. Sinister's orphanage instead of from a happy home. Yeah, he was specifically the first kid that she rescued. And we don't know a lot about his background other than that it was pretty tragic even before she got to him. Like, he seems like the one who was genuinely in need of rescue. Right. And then it just got weird. And we find out a little bit more about that because also in the grand tradition of 1990 villains, or villains in general for that matter, Nanny tells us what the hell happened for Storm to suddenly be a child and also, you know, not dead. That's right. Storm did not die. Nanny just kidnapped her and regressed her to a child's state which in the process took away a lot of her adult memories. Yeah, and this is interesting because the last we saw Storm, adult Storm anyway, she was flying after Nanny's ship when Havoc accidentally blew her up and the ship along with her. There was a body and everything, so this is interesting and mysterious. The plot thickens. Yeah, we'll learn more about the specific mechanics of that abduction and faked death in just a little while. Now what we find out is that Nanny is still after Storm, and specifically she wants to recruit Storm to be basically a second Orphan Maker, a counterpart. Orphan Maker is not happy about this. The idea of being joined and potentially replaced by a girl absolutely shocks his small stereotypical boy sensibilities, and Nanny does her best to console him. Trust me, Orphan Maker, you'll like having a baby sister to look up to you and admire you and, above all, help you help me save all the mutant children from the dark and deadly days ahead. Which is weird, because I sort of get the impression that Storm, as she is now, is older than the Orphan Maker was, based on the way he talks. 
I think so. But I think Storm was also just always a mature kid. So it's hard to say. Oh, yes. As an infant, she had the dexterity of a three to four year old. Didn't we she? did find that out at one point. That was so weird. Yeah. So Nanny and the Orphan Maker, I want to talk a little bit about them as villains because they show up like way more than you would expect in this era. I mean, they're probably the most recurring villains of the entire like very late 80s, very early 90s period. Yeah. And I got to say, I think they're overused. They work really well during Inferno. They work really well during the storyline surrounding the right, the stuff they're directly connected to. And after that, they lose a lot of their impact because we know where they come from. We know what their story is. They're just persistent and obnoxious. And it's not that they're bad or boring villains. I mean, they're not like Selene or the Shadow King for me where I just am not interested by them. I am interested by Nanny and the Orphan Maker. But it's like, dude, enough already, Claremont and Simonson for that matter. Or at least, you know, find a new act. Have them come up with a more wide-scale sinister plan than kidnapping all of the kids one at a time and maybe de-aging a couple of the adults. Okay, so you said find a new act, and that really just makes me think of Nanny and the Orphan Maker with, like, top hats and canes doing variety show-style stuff and then getting pulled by a hook cane off the stage. That is incredibly easy to picture. Right, isn't it? Like Nanny's weird egg robot body but with a top hat and stuff? I mean, they do pretty well as, like, the stars of a slapstick comedy backup strip, too. (laughs) I'm fully in favor of this. That is how to properly use Nanny and the Orphan Maker. Nanny and the Orphan Maker in Vegas. (laughs) Nanny and the Orphan Maker go to the moon. I like this. Nanny and the Orphan Maker meet Frankenstein. Let's just Abbott and Costello the whole thing. So they're doing all that. They're watching and bickering and stuff. Now, Storm herself, she has eventually succeeded in escaping her latest victim. She's still a fugitive. She's still being tracked by the FBI since the host of the Shadow King is an FBI dude. And she runs away to her hidey hole, as Claremont calls it, which in this case is an old military aircraft graveyard, which is such a Claremont concept. I really want a hidey hole in an aircraft graveyard. That sounds amazing. Kudos to Teenage Storm. That is arguably the coolest place to set up camp. Well, we just need to go to Cairo, Illinois, and there's apparently one right next door. And while she's here, she's attempting to rest and has a really genuinely creepy dream. It starts out happy. She's remembering, you know, more joyful days, her parents flying her around in their arms at a picnic. But no sooner is she enjoying herself than her dad turns into Shadow King Reese. Her mom turns into a ghoulishly round and huge-eyed nanny analog, and they begin to rip her apart. And the way that her mom is drawn as nanny is so scary. Like, her eyes are just these perfect spheres, her mouth is this perfect line, her head is kind of round. Like, that's the thing with Nanny. She's just basically an egg with most of a face and arms and legs. But that's a really sinister look when, you know, your mom turns into it. No, no, Miles, it's the fundamental and instinctual human fear of eggs that makes, for example, Dr. Robotnik such an effective villain. Ah, good point, good point. Eggman himself. Yeah. So, yeah, she wakes up and the weather starts going nuts because, you know, that's what happens with Storm whenever she has strong feels. The weather blows up. That's why she was always so serene and stuff when she was an early member of the X-Men. She kind of had to be. Exactly. And so she's just trying to figure out what the hell's going on because she's got all these little scraps of memories of, for instance, the X-Men, but they don't connect to anything. So what the hell's going on with that? She's got bigger problems right now, though, which is that her sudden manifestation has lifted the plane up a bit and, and then dumped it back down. Meanwhile, across town, Jacob Reese, or rather the Shadow King in Jacob Reese's body, has holed up with Dr. Shen in a house that they've taken over from its wealthy residents whom they have psychically enslaved. Yeah, and I kind of want to talk about this because I I say they as if Dr. Shen is a willing participant because she's played as one, but we know that she's not. What it seems like is that the Shadow King has basically brainwashed her or manipulated her into that persona. These aren't actions she would have taken, that she's acting basically with the illusion of agency, but not actually under her own direction. And it's it's a weird line because this is a character who's played very much as being part of the manipulation and a supervillain, but who we know as the readers has been herself brainwashed into this role. Yeah, when we first met Dr. Shen, when Storm was taken to that hospital in Cairo, Illinois... She was a pretty nice, normal lady, and now she's all evil and devious and making out with the Shadow King all the time. And there's some pretty messed up lack of consent stuff going on here that really only happens when you have things like telepathy. Telepathy is bad, kids. Talk to your parents about telepathy today. And so, yeah, the other interesting thing happening here, aside from Dr. Shen being somewhat enslaved by the Shadow King, is that the residents of this house are wearing some kind of familiar costumes. Apparently, they are wealthy BDSM aficionados. Well, what they specifically are is hounds, and we've heard that term before, we've seen these costumes before, 
because that's what Rachel Summers was in her dark future, the dark future of Days of Future Past. Which we have just learned may or may not have been started by and and perpetuated by the Shadow King. Again, this is going to get largely retconned out, but right now the hounds are imagery that is being more and more actively associated with the Shadow King in this era. Now, there's a third character who they've been attached to as well. So we've got the Earth-811, we've got the Shadow King, and we have a guy named Tullamore Vogue. Or at least his alien race, which are simply called the Slavers. These are very large, round, blue people, usually with funny-looking hair. Excalibur encounter them, or specifically Rachel Summers encounter them during the cross-time caper. And they'll later show up along with their hounds in the Nightcrawler ongoing that came out a few years back. So it's interesting like that this concept keeps popping up. It makes sense with the Shadow King and Earth-811 since, like you said, Claremont was playing up that connection. As far as why the slavers have them, who knows? It's just a thing. So our plot lines converge when Aurora decides that this rich household is her next target. Which There's- is, in fact, why the Shadow King was holding up there. He knows that these guys are you know, are bad guys, that they have they have stolen a large, large, large amount of precious artwork, and that they may or may not be war criminals. And unfortunately, Aurora is not as badass as she is as an adult, because when she's confronted by a hound, and then by, you know, the rest of the hounds, she is captured very quickly. She is now in the psychic clutches of the Shadow King himself. But not for long, because soon she will be plucked from the Shadow King's sinister grasp by the nimble fingers of everyone's favorite Raging Cajun, who will be making his debut in Uncanny X-Men 266. So when I was trying to collect a full run of X-Men, which I eventually gave up on because there's just a lot of it, this was an issue that I could see all the time at various conventions and stuff, but I could never afford. This is Gambit's official first appearance, and it's pretty valuable. It's also a pretty fun issue. It's drawn by Mike Collins, who is difficult to research because it's a very common name, and it's a name common to a large number of famous people, including, incidentally, shout out to my very favorite astronaut. Oh yeah, Michael Collins. Command and service module pilot of Apollo 11, the man who is most famous for not having walked on the moon. Oh man, I haven't walked on the moon either, and I'm not famous for that. Yeah, well, you are not Michael Collins. It's true. Now, Collins' art, it's sort of a, an acceptable house style. Like It's one of those art styles that doesn't really jump out at you, but also is quite good at getting the writing along and telling the story very well. And serviceable is the word you're looking for, I think. I don't know. Serviceable is like a damning with faint praise kind of work. And I do like Michael Collins's art. But one of the things I enjoy is that he's made some modifications to make things work a little better. So, for instance, the hounds that we saw last time in their fetishies, almost rubber Zentai suits. Now those have the spikes that we're familiar with from Rachel Summers' own costume. And the art in general just makes them look more intimidating, significantly more intimidating. They're now just not random rich people who happen to be put into fetish gear, but they're people that I would certainly want to run the hell away from. The Shadow King, being a classic villain, holds his hounds off and instead chooses to taunt Aurora for a while long enough for her to play possum and then stun her captors with lightning. She escapes briefly to a bathroom, but is caught again almost immediately and then manages to uh, dive out the window and into a swimming pool below. Although I want to go back for a sec, because when she's running away in the bathroom from these hounds, like, she whips one of them with a wet towel that she soaks very quickly so she can do so. She sprays another with a shower head. She is scrappy and resourceful, and also hitting a hound with a wet towel is just inherently funny, and I like it. I like the idea that she's just, like, doing the equivalent of spraying them with a spray bottle. She's like, no, no, <laughs> bad. bad. down, drop it, drop it. Now I'm just imagining one of the hounds with, like, you know, some kind of dead animal in its teeth, looking very proud of itself. The rich aren't like us. (laughs) The rich aren't like us. So, yeah, she falls very, very far into the swimming pool, and she actually is very quickly rescued by a a familiar metal-booted figure. This is the very first time we see good old Gambit. All right. You said metal-booted. I want to talk about Gambit's look, because... Boy, does Gambit have a look. He does. Now, if you've seen the X-Men 90s cartoon, that's the Gambit look we see here, basically. There are some slight differences, but it's overall that. It's pinker here. It is pinker here. But how has a costume like this survived for so long? Like, I don't think Gambit really has any costumes nearly this iconic. That is not the question that this outfit raises for me. The question this outfit raises for me is what the hell kind of thief dresses himself in bulky layers of neon and heavy metal boots. I mean, like, a really, really good thief, apparently? like he's, he's Or a uh, really, really bad thief. I mean, he seems to be successful at stealing things, so I think he's just given himself hard mode. But I have another question based off of that question, which is, 
is Gambit's pink metal costume a worse thief costume than Psylocke's of this era flesh-bearing bathing suit is a ninja assassin costume? Absolutely, because she's got range of motion, she's still got dexterity, she's still got stealth. I mean, he is wearing giant metal boots and neon, and she's wearing a dark-colored costume, and while it'll stand out in, like, a crowd scene, you know, it's not that ridiculous. I mean, I don't know, she's got a lot of bared flesh, and you, you want dark colors if you're a ninja. That's why they wear those black suits. Miles, you know the group who trained her, like, literally, they all wear red. That's the hand. That's their thing. That's a good point. Why the hell do ninjas wear red? That makes no sense. Because it's the Marvel Universe, and when you are a comic book character, you have to shelve certain practical considerations in favor of aesthetic ones. I guess that's true. And to be fair, if you ever try to wear black, then it'll probably be blue or purple within a couple issues. Anyway, see Psylocke herself, and of course, 70s Beast. So let's talk about what Gambit is actually wearing, Gambit's iconic costume. Because this is one of those things I think we tend to take for granted when we see it on the page, but when you actually talk about it or look at it hard or try to break it down, it's um, it's intense. Okay, so you already mentioned the knee-high metal boots. What else do we have? He is wearing black leggings with lavender stripes that just go up the outsides, sort of like tuxedo stripes. He's wearing a shirt that is sort of a breastplate, and it's magenta up to roughly the cleavage, and then has a yoke that is bright turquoise with sort of an intersecting uh, string pattern. It kind of reminds me of uh, those laser backgrounds you could get when you were getting a school portrait done in the late 80s. Yeah, no, his whole outfit is like the clothing equivalent of one of those laser backgrounds. Like, I feel like he took the sign from a skate rink as his main inspiration here. I agree. But of course, you can't just stop there because what you also need as a thief that has to be nimble and jump around is a gigantic bulky trench coat. You know, the trench coat isn't nuts. He can tuck things under it or whatever. I No, Gambit is a terrible thief. And yeah, I was thinking, you know, maybe we misinterpreted, but no, those boots are definitely made of metal and they definitely go up over his knees. <laughs> I kind of love his look, though, because it's just so very 90s. He's also it's, got facial buttresses. Uh, yeah, he's got one of those weird masks that we first saw Rusty Collins wear in Inferno when his head was injured. The kind of covers the sides of his head and the back of his head, but lets his hair stick out the top and his face stick out the front. Yeah, it's not a mask. It's facial buttresses. It does nothing to obscure or conceal his identity. I mean, it kind of keeps some of his hair out of the way. Not the important part, but yeah, at least no, some of it. Yeah, no, it doesn't because it doesn't intersect with his hairline at all. Like his hair just goes over it because it's lower on his forehead. Look, I'm going to show you. There are panels where you can see this pretty clearly. Oh, that's true. But he does have really long hair in the back. He's got like a mega Louisiana mullet. And so I guess it must be tucked under there, which as a person with long hair, I can say that's probably very uncomfortable. Here's the thing. We're going to find out eventually that the reason Gambit dresses like this presumably is tradition, because we are eventually going to meet his family or the people who raised him. And we're going to discover that where he comes from, this is just how thieves dress. Oh, no, no, no. This is how thieves dress. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. This is how thieves dress. It's also roughly how assassins dress. No, the assassins are even more neon. Okay, so... Oh, yeah, no. The assassins are are glam as fuck. The assassins actually really look like they just stepped out of hackers, out of, like, the cyberpunk club and hackers. They're so much fun. I love how completely impractical everything involving Gambit's backstory is. Which one? Well, that brings up a very good question, because all we know about Gambit at this point is that he's a thief and he's got, you know, and some, he is, some he powers. is not yet a thief. That is a development that will be retconned back in later. Right now, he still uses H's. But apparently the initial intent was for Gambit to be working for Mr. Sinister, for him to be a mole that Sinister intended to join the X-Men and, you know, get information or betray them or whatever. A mole is distinct from the mole or mole man. And eventually the idea was that he would fall in love with Rogue and that would cause him to question his loyalty to Sinister and he would eventually really be on the side of the X-Men. I actually really like that idea. Well, that's good because a version of it will end up being used, not by Claremont and not in the way that was initially intended, but we'll eventually find out that Gambit was actually involved in the mutant massacre. He helped get the Marauders together to make it happen. He was, in fact, working for Mr. Sinister. Well, shit. But my favorite possible origin of Gambit was one that never got used and was never fully intended, but apparently was discussed. Okay, I think I know the one you're talking about. Is this the one where he's basically the good twin to Mr. Sinister's evil twin? Right, because apparently the origin of Mr. Sinister initially was that he was a psychic manifestation of a young boy in that one orphanage in Alaska where Cyclops and a bunch of other kids spent part of their childhood. Um, Actually, that orphanage was in Nebraska, not Alaska. Oh, you know what? You're totally right. I bow to your superior Cyclops knowledge. Damn Skippy. But yeah, he was going to be the creepy kid named Nathan, who was Scott's sort of friend. Sort of friend, sort of bully, yeah. Yeah, just sort of the creepy Thomas Hardy-ish child running around, mind-controlling all the adults and basically manipulating them. And Sinister was going to be sort of his bad side and his evil side, 
and Gambit was going to be his good side. And I gotta say, it's a little weird that a kid would manifest Mr. Sinister as his bad side. I mean, I kind of get it. Like, you know, a kid might make a villain who's just super villainous and whose well, name is even— Well, the kid was also going to be, like, 150 years old. Like, he wasn't actually going to be a child. True, yeah. But coming up with a good side, like, really? Gambit? That guy? I mean, I guess that explains the impracticality of his costume, so okay. Are you kidding? Gambit is totally the kind of character a kid could make up. You could just, like, drop him into Axe Cop and he would fit right the hell in. Oh, man, now there's it's a crossover like I want to see. he's a thief, and he wears neon, and he can jump the highest, and he steals art and gives it back to people, except that sometimes he has other adventures, and he can make anyone like him, and he's got a staff he fights with, and he's got, what's, what's the nearest toy around? Oh, he's got cards. <laughs> Basically that. Yeah, Gambit could totally be a kid's imaginary friend. Okay, you know, you make a compelling argument. Now, that, of course, wasn't the origin that was used at all, but I really wanted to talk about it because that's just so fun and strange. So anyway, here we have Gambit having pulled Storm out of a swimming pool. Apparently, he is also here to steal art. This is a very popular place to steal art. I mean, there's a lot of art here because these folks have themselves stolen or fenced a whole, whole lot of it. So I don't know a lot about Illinois. I know it's got Chicago and I like Chicago's hot dogs and Chicago's very windy. And I know that apparently it's the art theft capital of the United States. And there's a city named Cairo. Well, Cairo, Illinois, specifically. Cairo, Illinois, is, yes. Um, it's actually pronounced Cairo. Oh, that almost ruins sorry. it. Why, sorry. Why did you shatter my illusion? I know. I know we've been calling it Cairo. It, it is pronounced Cairo, though. Boo. Boo for how a city is pronounced. I'm sorry, man. I'm really, really sorry. So anyway, Gambit is basically ignoring Storm until she tries to leave, and suddenly he tells her to stop. Attendeshir, watch the door. In fact, there is a hound coming. Do us both a favor, eh, pup-pup? Scoot away from the girl. Other ideas, eh? Gonna carry the kidling back to your boss? Claim a pat on Latette and an extra ration of yummies? Figured as much. Can't let you do that. Man, your attempt at a Cajun accent over the phonetic writing of Gambit's Cajun accent might actually be in combination the worst Cajun accent ever attempted. It's not a Cajun accent, it's a Gambit accent. That's an important distinction. It's like how Rogue doesn't have a southern accent, she has a Rogue accent. Cannonball has a southern accent. Rogue is just a rogue. Cannonball has an Appalachian accent. Well, yes, true. But seriously, man. It's all right. You like, just throw in some French. But the way Gambit talks here is so strange. An extra ration of yummies? Carry the kidling back to your boss? Like, w what's happening here? I mean, I think what's happening here is that Claremont is still getting the feel for Gambit's specific idioms. I mean, Claremont is a really idiom-heavy writer, and for all that we make fun of his accents, the way he writes characters relies on and emphasizes speech patterns a lot. And um, I think Gambits are still kind of gelling. I think he's sort of in the mushy, half-soupy stage of jellification. Sort of like a post-regeneration doctor from Doctor Who, trying to figure out all the details? Oh, or like uh, the fifth Doctor when he first regenerates and he's just sort of trying to find catchphrases and trying to get the hang of idioms and ends up screwing them all up and ending up with things like, where there's a will, there's a beneficiary and time melts the snowman. <laughs> that makes me really happy. And so, yeah, Gambit is confronting this hound and we see another iconic thing he does. Well... We sort of do, because he charges up the object in his hand, which is a throwing spike. Not a card, but a throwing spike. Man. Well, it's okay. I'll have cards by the next issue. Good. But yeah, he eventually decides to abandon the art theft thing he's here for to help Aurora because, hey, after all, thieves have to stick together, right? Yeah, Gambit is all about honor among thieves, and he's also just all about playing the side that he finds most appealing at any given moment. Um, he is a man whose loyalties are highly, highly negotiable. This is something that we are going to see as a defining trait of his character. Here it's charming because here it works out to our benefit. Or at least for the moment it does, because when the rest of the baddies show up, Dr. Lian Shen and the remaining hounds, he tries to sort of smooth talk them and say, hey, you know, the girl's yours, whatever you want to do. They don't buy it. But this is where we first catch what may or may not be one of Gambit's mutant powers, which it is... It is. It's part of his official power set. It only is sometimes. Marvel has gone back and forth on whether that's a mutant power or whether he's just smooth. I really, really, really would like it to be a mutant power. For a number of reasons. The first of which is that it explains the whole everyone falls all over Gambit when he's not actually that charming thing. Basically, it does a good job of narratively justifying a lot of bad writing. Oh, come on. Look at those facial buttresses. How could you resist those? So easily. <laughs> Fair so enough. So easily. Second, it makes him slightly less of a cad if he's been doing it unconsciously or just knows that it's something he can do, but doesn't really equate it to using powers on someone. Yeah, yeah, I'll buy that. And these powers, or lack of powers, or whatever they are, 
they don't actually work this time. So there is a big fight. But what interests well, they, me... Well, they sort of work. Leanne is at least intrigued or gets that something's happening. But she is not going to fall for it. Such a shame. So many pretty words you spoke. But far worse, the hints dropped. Promises made without words. Which is interesting to me because all he basically says is, I give up, I don't want to fight you, you can have the girl. Like, Which is the other thing, again, that to me heavily implies that there's a power of some sort backing this up. So his tertiary mutation is basically mutant innuendo? What's the secondary mutation? Uh, I don't know. That hair? The facial buttresses? The ability I, to wear metal boots and not clang everywhere? I thought the charm was the secondary mutation. The primary mutation was the energy charging. Well, regardless. And the eyes were just sort of a thing. You mentioned when we were talking earlier that you almost saw this as the sexy equivalent of that one Kids in the Hall sketch about the guy who can't say things other than in a sarcastic voice. Yes, yes, that Gambit has the equivalent of the speech impediment where everything you say sounds really sarcastic, so, only with him everything he says sounds really suggestive. <laughs> okay, I'm going to call that canon. I feel okay about that. Well, even though his uh, powerful, sexy, smooth-talking innuendo speech impediment doesn't save them any more than his charging-up throwing spikes did, Aurora and Gambit do manage to distract the bad guys for long enough to escape, although Gambit calls 911 to get the police to pick up the stolen art on the way. Because, guess, damn it, if he can't steal it, no one gets to steal it. Which I really enjoy. Like, that, that's the kind of petty that Gambit totally is. And we're seeing Gambit and Storm's dynamic almost immediately here. Like, he's referring to her as Stormy. She's telling him not to call her that. Like, he's just such a wonderful, charming pest to the overly serious 12-year-old that is Aurora Monroe right now. Yeah, this dynamic is great because it is so, so believable as the extremely serious, everything is life or death, super intense teen or preteen, and like the very chill adult. Storm manages to fly them out um, of, of, of the mansion and, and get them away via air for once her powers are actually listening to her. Whoa, very nice, Stormy, the way you get the wind to do whatever you want. How come it don't always work, eh? Because some people won't shut up and let me focus the concentration I need to prevent that from happening. It's such a fun dynamic. Like, this is a different side of Storm than we've seen, but, like, Gambit is the perfect foil for this kid. Which brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 267. By this time, Storm and Gambit have made it back to the airplane graveyard, and with them safely ensconced there, we can take a break to welcome a new, well, not new to the title, but a new ongoing artist to X-Men who is going to define the book for a very long time. A very, very long time, because this is Jim Lee's first issue of his gigantic run. It's not his first issue of X-Men again, but it's his first issue as the main artist of X-Men. And I gotta say, I mean... The 90s art style in general isn't my favorite, but I really do enjoy the work Lee is doing. Yes, everybody's overly muscly. Yes, everybody's overly sexy. But it's just so much fun to read Jim Lee issues. Yeah, there's a lot of energy in his art. Yeah, I think this is something that he's kind of lost over time as he's become a more stylized artist. The looseness of his earlier stuff is part of what I really like about it. It's got a lot of energy and dynamism, and I think he's kind of traded stylishness for narrative momentum in some ways since... I would agree, yeah. His modern stuff, like the work he's been doing with DC, just does much, much less for me. Yeah, characters in that feel a lot more posed, and while you still get some of that in this stuff, it's much more dynamic than it'll eventually become. Right, so anyway, we have Lee drawing things, and immediately on page one we can tell the difference, because we see Leanne Shen and the Hounds, they've been in the last couple issues as well, but they do not look the same. And I gotta give it to Lee, his Hounds look great. They are terrifying. They are like these monstrous demi-humans. And they are headed out, along with Dr. Shen, to... The very sexily dressed Dr. Shen. Right, to recapture the fugitives. Shadow King wants Storm back alive, but Shen is more concerned with Gambit. After, you know, that weird exchange they have, she says she wants to take his debt out of his hide. So is his debt that he was sexy? Does he owe her that he was sexy? So here's an interesting thing about this relationship. This reads to you as totally weird and totally off balance and totally irrational. Right. It reads to me as a gender-swapped version of a scenario that actually plays out really frighteningly closely to this in real life a lot. Oh, right. The whole thing where if a woman is attractive, then she if you owes are attract Not even if she's attractive. There are a lot of men who will read finding themselves attracted to a woman as an implicit promise on that woman's part. And wow. when they are denied, will get physically violent. You get a lot of stalking situations that arise from this. You get a lot of just straight-up assaults that arise from this. And yeah, that's actually a pretty common attitude of entitlement. And it's really interesting to see it turned around here. One of the things that happens sometimes with Gambit, because 
of ways he's used narratively and because of his specific power set is he ends up playing a more feminine or a more traditionally feminine role in power dynamics like this one. And it's always really interesting and a little bit uncomfortable to see those inverted. And I think it, one of the things it does is really effectively highlight the ways that they're really fucked up and that we take them for granted when they're the other way around. No, that's a really good point. I didn't see that parallel, but now that you pointed out, that's totally there. Like, that almost makes me wonder how much that's present with, say, a character like Nightwing, who is similarly a male character who's often portrayed as an object of sexual desire. Yeah, it's absolutely there. Huh. But there's less of the you made me want you thing than you get with Gambit. Well, regardless of her motives, Leanne and the Hounds are after them, and... Gambit and Storm realize that they don't have long to be here. And Storm, she has a solution, which I gotta say is kind of my favorite decision that is made throughout this arc by a character. She's like, well, you know what? We're in an airplane graveyard. I control the wind. Fuck it. We're flying. Because, you know, this has become her home. And since she's so scattered and so confused about what's going on, that's really valuable to her. And so she's trying to call up enough wind to lift a goddamn non-functional airplane into the sky. And she does because she's amazing and she's Storm. Well, and what this gives us, the reader, as a glorious gift is a fight between Gambit and the Hounds on top of a moving airplane in an airplane graveyard. Like, this is such a glorious action movie sequence. It's so much fun. And it's also freaking iconic. Like, we mentioned that Gambit shows up mostly fully formed, where he shows up fully, fully formed, fully squared formed. Is this issue right here? He's drawn by Jim Lee. He's decided to start using playing cards instead of throwing spikes. He's using a broom as, like, a staff to spin around. He's distracting people with his uh, fast talk, like, this is Gambit right here in his second freaking appearance. Don't you mean, this is Gambit? This be Gambit. Well done. That one thing that we don't really have here, though, is Gambit talking about himself in the third person all the time, which I recognize that's something that mainly I do in the cartoon did, but I kind of love it. Honestly, I think that's another characteristic that my preferred versions of Gambit have in common is that they don't do that as much. Oh, Gambit, be offended. And that's why you're not my favorite Gambit. <laughs> so we have a genuinely kick-ass fight scene. And long story short, Gambit and Storm do get away. She does manage to get the airplane in the sky. And they fly and they have a really charming exchange here. You gonna be okay flying this brute? I shall manage. For how long? As long as necessary, I suppose. Until we are safe. Forever then? I am open to suggestions. Follow the big muddy, Cher. Mama Mississippi. She'll take us home. And they're talking casually in the airplane, learning a little bit more about each other, when, unfortunately, Nanny's ship shows up. Flying away in an airplane is a great way to get away from villains on the ground. Villains who themselves have airships, not so much. And this is where we learn via sudden flashback slash narration what actually happened, why Storm is now a little girl instead of an adult woman. Apparently, in Uncanny X-Men number 248, when Storm seemingly died, what really happened is that she was taken aboard Nanny's ship and swapped with a life model decoy, which, from what I understand, are a big deal in the S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show right now. I haven't yeah, been watching Yeah, they're a thing throughout the Marvel Universe, but they're mostly something that S.H.I.E.L.D. has, and they're basically really, really realistic androids. And so, at that point, Nanny then psychically influenced Havoc to blast near her ship, but not at it, ejected a really messed up smaller version of her ship, and this corpse of a life model decoy. So the X-Men thought that Nanny's ship was taken down and that Storm was dead when neither was true. And in reality, Nanny put Storm into a weird, like, de-aging machine science-y thingum so that she could be a child because Nanny only protects children and because they're a little more, you know, psychically pliable and she can brainwash them as she does. Okay, so first of all, that's a really elaborate plan for a simple abduction especially considering that Havoc was the other figure involved. Like, they could have just dropped a redhead to walk past him and grabbed Storm while he was distracted. Oh, oh, wait, wait. Second theory, maybe Nanny herself, under that weird egg-shaped armor, is actually a redhead, and so she had extra influence over Havoc. Because normally her telepathy isn't very powerful, well, there especially has to be, there has to be visual contact, doesn't there? She just sent him a view of herself with red hair, and that was enough for him. Then he just sort of, his judgment went terrible, and he blasted in Storm's direction. Oh, Havoc. Oh, Havoc, your decisions are terrible and you'll never get your degree. We're sorry that your life is the worst. ABD aside, Storm managed to inadvertently foil Nanny's plan the first time because of her claustrophobia. She lashed out unconsciously with her powers, was able to break out of the ship and get away. Yeah, and in fact, they're able to get away right now because Gambit blasts the living crap out of the Orphan Maker with a card that he throws. 
and they fly away, and Storm wakes up much, much later after a horrible nightmare, almost impaling Gambit in the face with a dagger that she had nearby. But it's okay. They're cool. He catches it because he is just that smooth. Now, I don't find this dynamic nearly as irritating as I would if they were the same age, because ultimately he's got a good 10, 15 years on her, and he's got a good 10, 15 years more experience specifically as a thief and a fighter. So I can live with that, but I would have liked to see more back and forth with the the rescuing. That's fair, yeah. But that being said, I do really love where the plot goes from here because we just get this montage of them basically being hedonistic, romantic, like, you know, in the this is a romantic adventure, not in a, like, romancy, sexy way, pair of thieves going across the country, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor and having the finest food and sampling the finest drink and hearing the best music. And they're basically just living it up as awesome, incredibly sympathetic thieves only going after bad guys. And, like, it works well as a montage. It works well to just see a couple pages of this sheer criminal joy. But I gotta say, I could read a whole freaking miniseries just about this period that's glossed over right here. Yeah, man. I remember when we had one of the creators of X-Men Evolution on talking to him about Storm and him saying, you know, who'd want to see Storm as a teenager? And it's like, really, dude? Really? Storm as a teenager is awesome. And we see that so clearly right here, especially during this very brief montage. So it's interesting to note, have you read much Ultimate X-Men? I've only read Ultimate X-Men after all the characters get killed by that weird thing with Magneto. Okay, so Ultimate Storm is really different from 616 Storm. She's one of the most changed versions of the characters. And she's a professional car thief when Xavier finds her. And she's a lot angrier. She is basically an angry punk who is a really, really, really good car thief. Okay, I can see that. That makes sense. And it's a very different direction for the character. And the character evolves in very different directions from that. But it's really interesting seeing a version of Storm with the goddess part just completely taken out, who just ran with the initial stuff. And that's kind of what we're seeing here, because this version of Storm is completely pre-goddess. It's just her as a young thief and orphan. So she and Gambit are running around having cheerful adventures until Nanny and the Orphan Maker once again catch up. And this time they manage to nab Gambit, who almost is able to sweet talk his way out until Nanny realizes what he's up to. Why, I... Yes, the fiend! An intriguing power, especially if we can turn it to our uses... Which, again, Gambit's charm is a mutant power. I feel pretty strongly about that. Like, that seems really clear to me, especially early on. That's certainly the implication here, yeah. So I mentioned, you know, rescue reversal, and here is a great place where we do actually get that. Storm comes up to rescue Gambit. And this is actually where we get the flashback about her breaking out of the brainwashing cocoon before her powers could manifest. The other thing that Storm finds is a suit of armor that Nanny had intended for her. It's a lot like Orphan Makers. And she goes, okay, fuck it. And she puts on the armor. She goes out to fight Orphan Maker and rescue Gambit. And she yells, get away from her, you bitch. And she punches the queen alien. And wait, no, that was different. But it is cool seeing Storm basically wear a tiny mech to rescue her new friend. Like, she doesn't know a lot about the world. She doesn't know a lot about why she is where she is and why she can't remember things. But she does know that this guy was nice to her, and if there's a robot suit that she can use to save him, then by Jove she will. Again, what we're seeing is sort of the fundamental base layer of who Storm is. Yeah, Storm is somebody who doesn't blink, who doesn't think twice, who just does what she wants to do confidently and bravely. And Orphan Maker is really happy that she's doing these things because this proves his point that he doesn't need a sister. Yeah, and the way he talks right here, I mean, he's clearly such a child. Between Jaska's art a couple of issues ago and Claremont's writing here, we're seeing the Orphan Maker more as Peter, the little kid who is just completely imprinted on his mother figure than we ever have before. So here, for instance. Nanya, missed me. See, Nanny, I don't need any stupid girl sidekick. Now, in Peter's defense... Nanny has really sprung this on him, and she hasn't been explaining it well, and I feel like she's someone who cares deeply about kids but doesn't really quite understand how to take care of them. I mean, look, Miles, you've been in basically this scenario. Like, you're an older sibling with fairly competent parents. How did they explain it to you when they started building a second suit of battle armor? Oh, they were very gentle about it. You know, they told me that I would never be replaced, that all of the parents that I had murdered with the giant gun they gave me were going to stay dead and nobody would ever be able to re-murder those parents. And there would be parents that I could murder better than my little brother ever could, even though my little brother would be a special robot murder kid himself. See, that's how you do it. 
And so Storm does manage to use her robot exoskeleton that she was going to be bound into to defeat Nanny and the Orphan Maker and save Gambit, who drops a card out of his sleeve and manages to flick it and affect the battle as well. And the ship crashes into a lake and Storm and Gambit escape and Nanny and the Orphan Maker don't. And in fact, they won't be seen for a very long time. This is their last appearance in this era. I don't think we're going to see them again until the Generation X series, like years later. With Nanny's ship destroyed and with the moment of revelation she had in it, Storm now has her memories back and her, at least, emotional maturity. Gambit notices the change almost immediately, and she acknowledges that things are going to be different, but ends their conversation as they fly off in their plane on a great, great last line. Tell me, Gambit, have you ever heard of a band of mutant heroes called the X-Men? And after so many issues of the X-Men not really being a team... Of all these characters we know and love being scattered to the four winds, missing their memories or presumed dead or whatever, seeing this hint that maybe this team is going to be a team again, and in fact, it will, not immediately, but it will, is actually genuinely exciting. Like, even knowing exactly what's going to happen after this, I kind of got super pumped just reading that line. So that's a good note to end the story, and I think that's where our coverage of at least this chunk will end as well, because you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, if you could change one thing about your earlier episodes, what would it be? For example, would you have gone into more depth with certain stories or introduced Peter Corbo's theme music earlier? I think that if I could go back and change any one thing, it would have been to talk with an outrageous fake French accent. <laughs> Just no, be gambit all the time. that's not true. The thing, the thing is, all of the stuff that we did or didn't do in our earlier episodes as compared to our later episodes, I think, I mean, that is a necessary learning curve. Like, we couldn't have gotten to our later episodes without those earlier episodes. And again, I think we were super, super lucky going into this because we had Bobby Roberts as a mentor at the beginning who talked us through what I think are a lot of amateur mistakes and stumbling blocks for beginning podcasters that we got to bypass because of that. Yeah, I mean, it's still a very different feel listening to an early episode of our show versus a later one. Like, I think we used to be faster paced, but we also used to gloss over stuff more. Well, I used to talk a lot faster. Like, actually, okay, that's probably what I do. Because I worked really, really hard to sort of consciously slow myself down after the first couple episodes because I realized I was just spitting words out too fast. Do you remember that one bad review we got about the person that couldn't listen to us at one and a half speed and he was really mad? Yeah, I really liked that one. My favorite thing, though, is that we got a Tumblr question recently from someone who was basically like, I love listening to the show sped up because it's just amazing <laughs> and just like full blast. So there. <laughs> but in answer to the question about would we have done certain things earlier, I mean, I don't know. For me, it was fun, you know, developing those running jokes organically, like usually from some kind of an unscripted one-off reference that we decided to bring back again and again and again. So I like to think that for listeners going through the show, it's also entertaining seeing those things develop. I don't know because I only ever listen to our show like when we proof it, and that's not really a, a standard way. Yeah, we don't go back and listen to those early episodes. And I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. You mentioned in the notes that you would have spent more time on the Silver Age, and I kind of agree. But at the same time, I think skipping over it as much as we did and just glossing it at the beginning actually worked really well for the podcast. So I think that's less something that I'd like to go back and do, that I'd like to take a break and just have like Silver Age month sometime, you know, in the next year or two. I do agree. I think it worked better to get to the stuff we loved earlier and to the stuff that's more iconically X-Men earlier. So yeah, I think that was a good call. Well, and I think going fast at first let us build up a degree of momentum that we really needed to sustain this long term. At this point, this train's never stopping. It's just going to keep going until it crashes into something and it's a horrible tragedy. Exactly like the X-Men. Okay, so Tsuji Tunes asks on Tumblr, Dear Jay and Miles, what are your thoughts on the upcoming series Legion that will be premiering on FX? I'm excited and interested in seeing how well he translates to screen. Okay, I'm actually genuinely excited for this show. So if I have one complaint about the X-Men movies, it's that most of them, except for maybe First Class, they don't really have much of a distinct tone. That's, I think, part of why Deadpool worked so well, because it did. And from what we've seen of this previews, I think Legion may very well be that distinctive. It looks super, super weird. I mean, if the trailers are accurate, then his mutant powers are going to be really strange. And not just reality-altering, but also narrative-altering. The cast of characters, they're all people that are just a little off from normal. And, I mean, there's a freaking Bollywood dance number that just sort of happens in one of the trailers. If the show could be this quirky and off-kilter and really capture, like, the fragmented nature of the way Legion sees the world and the way his powers work, then we're going to have something that's actually a good show, not just a decent X-Men adaptation. I'm very, very excited to see the stuff Miles talked about, the ways that the show looks like it is going to develop visually and narratively. I am 
very, very nervous about the way they're going to represent Legion as a character and especially the relationship of mental illness to his powers. That's true, because that was iffy enough in the comics. And we do know that the show takes place inside some kind of a mental institution. And that's not typically something that television or movies or really much of any fiction has ever handled very well. So I hope it does. But you're right. That's definitely a concern. So with that, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support get you acknowledgement on the show itself from a range of fictional characters and concepts. I am turning the mic over appropriately to this episode today to Sexy Sexy Gambit without a bicycle horn. Now that we got that art teaving out of the way, Gambit say it's time to have some fun, no? Cameron Harris, Garrett Scott, mes me. We gonna drink the world dry, eat all the fine cuisine, steal all the riches, and have a fine time with all the belle femme et beau homme out there. Gambit don't discriminate. And if the right romantic moment strikes in our travels, well, we see what happened then, we. And we'll take it from there to the angry Claremontian narrator. It's a bit of a mood kill. It would be easy to follow Dan McComb's example and run blithely forward never stopping to consider the gaps that still linger in your past, Robbie Fraser. But try as you might, the mystery haunts you in every quiet moment. Most of all, when you gaze at the faces of your sleeping children and wonder if their names were really your choice, or a suggestion planted by some invisible actor, manipulating you to some unknown end. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. And be sure to come see us, say hi, and check out our live show at Emerald City Comic Con on March 2nd through 5th in Seattle, Washington. As Sexy Gambit and the Angry Claremontian narrator demonstrated, this podcast is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, I will be fleeing Oregon for uh, warmer climbs. So guest host Elizabeth Alley will be returning to help me dive into Excalibur's adventures with Galactus, not exactly Franklin Richards, and some guy called the Nth Man. Man. <laughs>